Welcome to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl, and it is Monday, May 24th. On today's show, the Utah Jazz capsize in Game 1 against the Memphis Grizzlies as Donovan Mitchell sits out again. I'll be getting to that momentarily. First, today's daily gambling tidbit on why gambling should be legal in Utah. It was an incredible weekend of sports. And there were a variety of things that I participated in when it comes to gambling. Uh, Stanley Cup playoffs were great. NBA playoffs were great for the most part. And yet the thing that was catching my attention most heading into Sunday was the PGA Championship in golf. We had Phil Mickelson, the goofiest bastard you'll ever meet. Uh, This weird caricature of himself who's constantly hawking products like strange sunglasses and coffee while also playing this swashbuckling brand of golf that, that is very appealing to the viewer. He's leading the tournament. And behind him, we have Brooks Kepka, uh, kind of the villain on the PGA Tour, a man who has now grown out, grown out a goatee to look even more evil than he normally is in the eyes of many PGA Tour fans. And also one of the most accomplished major players over the course of the last five plus years. And so I had a choice. I go, I got to bet the weird ass, or I got to bet the the villain. And I debate back and forth. I can get better odds with Phil, but I know Kepka's track record. It seems like the wheels are going to fall off for Phil at some point. So I make the executive decision to bet on Brooks Kepka. And I get involved on Sunday, the very first hole, uh, Kepka birdies, Phil bogeys. And I go, all right, sweet. It's going to be, it's going to be a cash. It's going to be easy. And it was kind of the exact opposite. They flip-flopped back and forth the whole front nine. And then Phil really turned on the burners down the stretch of the back and put together a very memorable round of golf. He became the oldest major champion in the history of men's golf, 50 years old. And that's a really cool story uh, where a 50-year-old player can beat a field of the very best athletes in the world. That's something that no other sport could possibly provide. It's one of the great draws for me playing golf at an amateur level that on any given day, if you piece things together, you can beat people who are much more talented and gifted than you because golf is a very unique sport in that way. So I go through it and I've lost my bet and I'm more mad at Kepka than I normally am. At the same time, uh, it was a pretty cool moment and pretty cool back nine to watch this 50-year-old goof walk around on on way to his sixth major championship at an age that it just didn't really seem possible. So why gambling should be legal in Utah for today? It's the only forum where a 50-year-old can take my money and I still feel like I accomplished something just by participating. And now a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. The playoffs are upon us, and game one of Utah-Memphis is in the books. The Grizzlies won 112-109. I was at the game last night. Uh, And it was fun to be back in a playoff atmosphere, even if the Jazz lost. So I'll preface everything I'm about to say by the simple truth that 
It's a seven-game series. If you lose four games, that's when panic really starts to set in. Uh, and one game is never when you press the panic button. However, what's cool about the playoffs is rather than the regular season, when I'm constantly preaching, this really doesn't matter, we can't take away anything from one individual game, uh, there's a lot to take away from a playoff game because it either speaks to things that are going to happen down the road or it gives you a vision of what your own team needs to change in order to be better moving forward. Or it could just be as simple as this was wrong place, wrong night, and game two will be different simply by being a different night with no adjustments. There are all sorts of things that go into a playoff basketball game. So for today's show, I'm going to go over stuff that happened in game one, but I also want to speak about it in terms of a larger vision. How does it apply to the series? How does it apply to the playoffs if the Jazz are able to advance past the Grizzlies? Uh, and the things that really interest me about this team, especially when it comes to the playoffs. So there are three things that I've been thinking about going into last night and also while I was there and coming out of the loss. Home court, uh, what that means. Utah Jazz three-point shooting, something that we've talked about continually all year and is a major story coming out of game one and will continue to be for the remainder of the playoffs. And Rudy Gobert's defense and how the entire defensive structure of Utah is built upon him and fair or not fair, the, the failings of that structure will be upon his shoulders. So we'll start with home court because this is a very unique season and it's hard to determine what home court is and what it means and compare that against years past. This is the first time since the playoff expanded to 16 teams in 1985 that neither of the top two seeds in a conference are the favorite to win it. So Phoenix and Utah in the Western Conference, neither of those two are the gambling favorite to win the Western Conference. That would be the Clippers and the Lakers. That's pretty crazy right out of the gate, and it speaks to the season that we are watching and participating in. It's strange. It's tied into this COVID era. It's tied into a league that's changing before our eyes when it comes to resting players, when it comes to the three-point shot and how teams are embracing that. And we're kind of in this weird limbo of trying to understand how much of the past applies to the present. I'm going to read a stat to you from Kevin Pelton of ESPN. If both the Jazz and the Suns get upset before the conference finals, it would mark a break from NBA history. There have been just three conference finals since the playoffs expanded to 16 teams featuring neither top two seed. The 2007 West, San Antonio versus Utah, 2011 West, Dallas versus Oklahoma City, and last year's East, Boston versus Miami. So, home court advantage. It's usually an enormous deal. We are seeing the top two teams continually in the conference finals since the playoff field expanded to 16 teams. A, because they're good, and B, because they can pull upon the natural advantage that home court gives. Uh, and so that pays dividends in a normal regular season, and it's really hard to try and understand how it will pay dividends in a season like this, where capacity is diminished within the crowd, and we're not really sure what type of vibe we're getting in each individual arena when it comes to the playoffs and when it comes to a playoff-style crowd and atmosphere. So I, I'm very cognizant of this, and I'm going into last night's game wondering how is this going to match up from an actual atmosphere perspective. Uh, I've been to Utah Jazz playoff games in the past, and it's one of my favorite things to attend because 
it is a emotionally charged environment from the opening tip and everybody's completely tuned in. And if you go to regular season games versus playoff games at Vivint Smart Home Arena, you really grasp that difference because regular season, you're kind of moseying around and the crowd will get turned up in the fourth, especially in tight games. And the playoffs bring a different style. It's from the opening tip uh, and people are deeply emotionally invested in the entire game. And that really gets ratcheted up in the fourth quarter. And so I'm trying to determine if this will be the case last night. And maybe it's just my own mind. I don't know. I feel like the first half of that game was a little bit lacking from the atmosphere perspective and how the jazz crowd usually is and how intense and invested in every single play they are from the opening tip. I didn't feel like the first half had that. And again, that might just be my perception and I'm wrong. And the second half had that greatly, especially as the, da as the Jazz were getting down and it seemed like they needed an emotional boost, like the crowd came and gave them that. That's part of that home court that you want when things aren't going your way. Uh, the crowd just continually fires emotional energy down onto the court and you can tap into that source. So the Jazz still lose uh, because a crowd can only have so much impact on a game. Most of it comes from influencing referees and how they choose to call a game and a little bit influences just the emotional charge that a team can ride. And last night that wasn't enough. However, the theme coming into the playoffs that I spoke about last week of every single contender having major question marks, that seems like it's even more so after the opening games of each series. Uh, the Jazz are definitely in that boat, as I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to get into some of the questions that have arisen out of Game 1 and that we'll have moving forward. And as I look across the league, it's the same thing. Look no further than Phoenix against the Lakers, who played Sunday afternoon, and the Suns win by nine points. And coming out of that game, I almost had more questions about both teams than I did going in. Chris Paul gets hurt. Uh, he looked compromised down the stretch of that game. Who knows how much he is actually going to be playing with an injury. Uh, who knows if Devin Booker can continue scoring at the rate he did in game one, where he was absolutely fantastic. Who knows if DeAndre Ayton can play like he did in one of the best games that I've ever seen him play. He dominated everything. He finished with around 20 and 15. He outplayed Anthony Davis, which if you're Phoenix looking at that, you go, <laughs> that's, that's an incredible win for us. And on the other side... LeBron looks physically compromised. He's not his same explosive self. Uh, Anthony Davis has been meandering around despite the fact that he looks health, uh, from a health perspective, he looks where he was months ago when he was healthier, and yet he's not producing at the same rate. These are still these huge, huge, huge questions that they're probably just going to exist until one of these teams loses. Um, the Jazz are getting more and more in that boat. I was hoping when this series would start, some of the questions that I'd spoken about before the playoffs began, some of them would be answered. And coming out of game one, I kind of feel the opposite. So let's get into some of that stuff. Uh, I'm going to read to you another quote from Kevin Pelton of ESPN when it comes to home court. The narrative that Utah has underachieved in the playoffs doesn't match up to reality. Sure, the Jazz went out more meekly than expected against the Rockets in 2018 and 2019, but they've never lost a series with home court advantage under head coach Quinn Snyder. In fact, 
they've never had home court advantage in any series in that span, managing to pull off two upsets to advance. That stat should illustrate how much more dominant this Utah team was than its predecessors. End quote. So my takeaways from this idea, they're twofold. Number one is I really struggle to ever judge a team who loses to someone that's better than than them. That's why in the past with the Jazz and their playoff failings, if you want to call them that, it's really hard for me to hold them to account because they're always the worst team in that series. They're not, they don't have home court, especially in these Rocket series. They were inferior from a talent perspective. And when you lose like that in the playoffs, it doesn't mean as much to me as when you lose as the favorite. So this year is very different for the Jazz because they have home court. And while they're not the gambling favorites if they're playing the Clippers or the Lakers, they are going to be if they play any other team, including heavy favorites against the Memphis Grizzlies. And that's a different kind of pressure that you have, and it's a different weight that you have to learn how to play under, being the favorite versus being the underdog. The Jazz in the past, they've been able to say, uh, it's, we lost, it, it's not fine, but we weren't expected to win, and so we're going to try to get better. And they have, to their credit. And this regular season is a testament to what they've built, a very good basketball team and a much better ba- basketball team than they've had in the past. Now we're in the playoffs, and they've lost game one to Memphis. And the crowd that likes to piss on Utah and say this is a team that's more built for the regular season rather than the playoffs, they have more gasoline for that fire because the Jazz did not look very good last night and they didn't play in the way that they showed us throughout the regular season they are capable of playing. So that leads us into what's going on on the court. Home court, that's its own thing. It's interesting. It has a small impact, but the vast majority of impact of a basketball game is what is actually going on on the court. So there are two things that, that I always hone in on with this year's Jazz team. Uh, the first one is something I've continually talked about on this show. It's three-point shooting. The Jazz were incredible this regular season as a three-point shooting team. And, and to illustrate that, I want to read a quote from Zach Harper of The Athletic. They bombard you by dominating the three-point line. The Utah Jazz outscored their opponents by 1,266 points from behind the three-point line this season. They made 422 more three-pointers than their opponents. That's nearly six extra three-pointers per game than their opponents have to make up. That their opponents have to make up. It's just an insane hole to have to climb out of every single game. On average, teams are down 15 to 18 points from behind the three-point arc each game, and they have to make that up elsewhere, end quote. So this is the mathematical advantage that the Jazz have really embraced this year. Volume, three-point shooting, if we do that efficiently, we're going to have a pretty big point gap every single game that the other team will have to make up. 18 points is that's a pretty noticeable advantage if you're shooting with volume and efficiency from behind the three-point line. Uh, And the Jazz have really done that well for the majority of the regular season. Uh, Last night, that was not the case. They go 12 for 47 from the three-point line in game one. Uh, Jordan Clarkson is 0 for 8. Mike Conley is 3 for 11. George Ning is 1 for 6. You get the point. It was one of those 
barfy nights that the Jazz have from three-point land from time to time. Uh, they couldn't make what they have continually made throughout the regular season. Uh, and this is one of the questions about this style of play. And it's not something you ever really push the panic button on, which makes this whole topic of discussion very interesting. When you become uh, a three-point team, you spin the roulette wheel over and over and over. And you trust in your roster that has a lot of adequate to very good three-point shooters on it. You trust that over the course of the time, uh, over the course of time, those people are going to make the majority of their three-pointers. And the Jazz have really leaned into that this season. That's why they were one of the best offenses in the regular season. And it's also why, going into the playoffs, one of the questions that people, including myself, had about the team is how sustainable is this style of play specifically for when you get into the playoffs and space shrinks and those looks that were a lot more open in the regular season are less so. Uh, what happens when you don't have those at your disposal? If you're a volume three-point shooting team, which you still have to be, and you're going 12 for 47 in the game, that's problematic. Because now, the Grizzlies, who are not a good three-point shooting team, but they also don't shoot for volume, they were 7 for 20 last night. That's a gap that is a lot easier to make up for that team uh, in a way that teams really struggle to do in the regular season. So this is an ideal strategy when you're playing as the underdog, which the Jazz have been in the past. When you're shooting three-point shots over and over, there's a higher degree of variance to those shots. And the more variance you can introduce as an underdog, the better, because it just muddles the playing field. And now the team with more talent is going, well, if you went 22 for 47 from three-point land, the next thing we know, we lost that game. Uh, You've helped to ease that talent gap. The problem with this is... The Jazz are now playing as favorites. And this strategy as a favorite is a little less ideal because you are introducing variance. And when you hit your shots, it's awesome because you run away with it. You just bombard the opposition. You win by 30 points. And the Jazz have done that this season many times, and it's looked awesome. In the playoffs, when you introduce this as a shot that has a lot of variance to it, it can be really maddening. Uh, And something that I was aware of going into the playoffs and something that I would also talk about continually on the show, just buckle up and prepare yourself. The Jazz are going to have multiple games per series where they do this, where they go 12 for 47, where Clarkson's 0 for 8, and other players are shooting very bad clip from three-point land. This is what you get when you're a three-point shooting team. The hope is just we have more games that are good rather than bad, and because of that, we've won a series four games to two or four games to three. That's all you need in a playoff series. That's why it's easy to not press the panic button after a game one loss because you realize, all right, our adjustments for this game could be as simple as saying, we will make more of those shots in the future. We'll continue to get those same looks and we're completely comfortable with the way that we played offensively in that game. It could be as simple as that. Uh, I would look at last night's loss and say there are things that the Jazz could do better, uh, namely take care of the basketball, especially in that first quarter. There was a very long stretch, about seven minutes, that the Jazz just didn't really seem to be able to hold on to the ball. And that is a little bit problematic, and that's something that you can also clean up as a team when you're reviewing your film and going, what can we do differently in game two? Uh, What's hard about being a three-point shooting team is after every game, you can say exactly what I just said. You know what? All we need is just these shots to go down. And you can say that until you lose a playoff series. It's the curse and the blessing of being a three-point shooting team. It introduces variance. 
It also allows you to hit a much higher ceiling than if you don't embrace the three-point shot. And yet, it also makes it easy to push away a loss and say, hmm, we don't really need to change that much. And the next thing you know, you're down 2-0 or you're down 3-1 or worst case scenario, you've lost four games and you're now out of the playoffs. The other on-court question that I have going into the playoffs, uh, and it's a very big one, the Utah Jazz defense and specifically Rudy Gobert, who is everything to that defense. When I say the Utah Jazz defense, people just think of Rudy Gobert and rightfully so. He's gotten Defensive Player of the Year accolades in the regular season. He's probably going to get that again this year. And yet the knock and the narrative exists that what he brings in the regular season is slightly less so from a defense perspective in the playoffs. And Gobert knows that. There's an interview with Tony Jones of The Athletic right before the playoffs began where he acknowledged a lot of those critiques and said, actually, some of them are, I mean, they're kind of true. You know, I do need to perform at the level I do in the regular season defensively for this team to hit its ceiling, for this team to be a championship contender and to win a championship. The Jazz can't have Rudy Gobert being 90% or 80% of what he is defensively in the playoffs. They need him to be that game-changing wrecking force that he continually is during the course of the regular season. So I'm interested going into round one because before the final playing game on Friday night, I'm thinking it's going to be Jazz against Warriors. And I'm very interested for that style of offense versus Rudy Gobert's defense because it's not something Gobert is comfortable doing. The Warriors are coming into town. You have Steph and Draymond going pick and roll, pick and roll, pick and roll. And Gobert is going to have to go out into space and try to guard and alter the shot of the best scorer in basketball in Curry and a very unique, magical player in his own right. And Draymond Green, who's one of the great pick and roll passers of his time. So I'm worried about that, but kind of intrigued to see, okay, Gobert, if you want to answer critics, this is how you answer them. You go against something like that. And if you can shut that down, that speaks to what he wants, which is I am playing at the level in the playoffs that I play in the regular season. And instead Memphis goes in and beats Golden State on Friday night. And coming out of that game, I'm sitting there going, this is great. uh, And this is really good for Rudy Gobert. Because the strengths of Memphis tie into the strength of him as a defensive force. They want to get to the rim. John Morant and Dylan Brooks, they want to attack the paint relentlessly. And Jonas Valanciunas, he wants to get the ball. He's not going to go and drill a bunch of three-pointers. He's not a stretch big. He's a guy who wants to get into the paint and play bully ball. And that's where Gobert wants to be. He wants to be in the paint. So I look at that and I say, this is great. We have a series that can be a springboard for what Gobert wants to do and be in the playoffs. The same style of defensive force he is in the regular season. This is the style of team that will feed into his strength. So I'm very optimistic going into game one. And things did not hold up to that by the time game one was over and Memphis had won. Gobert plays only 25 minutes and he fouls out. And... What Memphis wanted to do, attack the paint, they did relentlessly and at a high level. They outscore the Jazz 62 to 42 in paint points. Dylan Brooks scores 31. He played fantastic. Morant scored 26. He played fantastic. Valanchunas ends up with 15. All three players shoot at least 50% or better from the field. It was efficient and it was right in the restricted area. The number one 
place that we know Gobert is tied into, and Gobert is normally very good at defending. And instead, because of foul trouble, and at times when he was on the court, they still were able to have success doing that, Memphis dictated the terms of engagement in game one. So now we have the question that's still there, and it's a little more amplified because I'm thinking this is a matchup that will favor someone like Rudy Gobert on defense, and game one did not follow that storyline. And fair or not, Rudy Gobert is going to be judged on everything he does in the playoffs. Nobody really... Outside of Jazz fans, nobody really cares about any more regular season honors that Rudy Gobert could accumulate. I think the general NBA fan, they're past the point of thinking it's cool for Gobert because that narrative is sitting on his shoulder. He is not this in the playoffs. And fans really, really, really hate when a player is that. And so now Gobert carries that on his shoulder. And this is the proving time. So game one goes against him, uh, and, and he's got to come back in game two. And the adjustment he needs to make is, A, you can't commit as many fouls, and B, he's just got to be better at doing what we know he can do at the highest level, defend the paint. When Morant's attacking the rim, he's got to be there, and he can't foul. When Dylan Brooks is doing the same, exact same thing. Uh, he can't be moved around by Valanchunas and have these little jump hooks dropped over his head. All of that is going to be on Gobert's shoulders. Because everything the Jazz do defensively in the regular season, we give credit to Gobert for that. And rightfully so, in my opinion. And the negative side of that equation is, if things go south, that's on his shoulders. So game one, the defense went south. The Jazz were dominated in the paint by Memphis's offense. That's on his shoulders, even if he wasn't on the floor for large portion of the game. Uh, if, if he wants this series to be a springboard to a changed playoff narrative and a changed perception of how fans view Gobert as a playoff defender versus a regular season defender, that's got to be different in game two and the remainder of the series. So, last but not least, uh, the largest and biggest question coming out of game one. It has nothing to do with on-court stuff. Uh, it has everything to do with Donovan Mitchell, who did not play. And we thought that there was no chance that would be happening even up until about three hours before tip. The last we saw Donovan Mitchell was on April 16th. That is a month and eight days from today. He's not played an NBA game since then. Uh, and everything we heard from the jazz organization was don't worry about this. This is not a big deal. We're taking it slow. We're taking it easy. He's going to be ready to go in the playoffs. And our priority is that, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, why would you rush back a guy in the regular season with an ankle injury to try and snag a different playoff seed if you could compromise him in the playoffs? So I buy into that, and I think everybody bought into that. I was a little bit uh, queasy at the thought of Mitchell trying to shake off Rust in game one of a playoff series, but I didn't feel like that was a big issue, especially playing Memphis, because I go, mm, the Jazz, they can shake off Rust. I think they're a lot better team than Memphis. And if Mitchell needs a series to get acclimated, this is a pretty good series for that to happen rather than what Phoenix is having to go through as the two seed or somebody else in the West because they're not the one seed like the Jazz. And Mitchell himself says he's ready to go Sunday morning. We're ready for him to play. I'm excited. I go, I haven't watched him play in a long time. He's a very electric player. It's going to be great. 
And then he's not playing. And we're still unsure of why. And the playoffs are always shaped by injuries. Always. Throughout the history of the NBA, you could go down every single year and say, okay, this was an enormous injury. Uh, Russell Westbrook tore his meniscus this year. And this was a, a huge injury. Kyrie Irving fractured his kneecap. Every single year, there are series and championships that are decided simply by the fact of this person was injured at the wrong time and that screwed over this team. The Lakers are hoping that's not the case with LeBron's ankle or AD or any of those things. Each team has these built in. And the Jazz, who have had pretty reasonable health, all things considered throughout the season, they didn't have that looming over their head to the same extent as a lot of these other teams. And yet now we've played game one and Donovan Mitchell wasn't there. And that's an enormous question moving forward because now the Jazz are down 1-0 in this series and it's not a foregone conclusion that they're just going to walk over Memphis and go to the second round. It seems like they're going to be in for more of a dogfight, which A, makes it really important that Mitchell is back, but B, that's a hard environment to be shaking off rust that comes from a month and a half long layoff. And that's a tough ask of a player to say, Donovan Mitchell, the value that you have for this team It is immense in a playoff setting because on nights when we don't shoot well from three-point land, when we're 12 for 47, you are the best fallback option we have on our roster to be the isolation-style playoff scorer that is needed for teams to win a championship. When you can roll the ball to them and say, things aren't going our way tonight. Can you get us some really tough buckets down the stretch? That's Donovan Mitchell's value, and he has done that in the playoffs in the past, and I trust in him to be able to do that moving forward. We saw that from Boyan Bogdanovich in the fourth quarter as the Jazz fell down by 17 and made a really spirited charge to get back and have a chance to tie the game at the end of regulation. Bogdanovich carried the Jazz in that stretch. He ended up with 20 points in the fourth quarter alone, and he played admirably in that role as things aren't going our well, or things aren't going our way. We are not shooting well from three-point land. Can you just get us some tough buckets? Can you relentlessly attack the rim in a way that Memphis is doing and get free throws or shots at the rim. And that's the way that we're going to have to score tonight because we don't have the three-point bucket falling. Boyan did that well last night, but to be an actual real full championship version of themselves that the Jazz think they are and that they want to be and that a lot of fans see in them, Donovan Mitchell has to be there in that role. He has to. So now we arrive at the destination of the Jazz have still a lot of questions coming out of game one. That's no different than any other team in the playoffs. Every team right now is having the long, hard look in the mirror. Teams that won game one, teams that lost game one. It's the same process, how you refine yourself over the course of a playoff series. It's something that I really like about the playoffs. This constant evaluation of yourself, this constant tweaking of yourself, and over the course of a playoff series you really see the actualized version of that team, whatever it may be. We're going to see that with the Jazz in this series against Memphis. Uh, And without Donovan Mitchell, that's not the fully realized version of the Jazz. So now we have game two on deck on Wednesday night, two days from now. Uh, And the Jazz are in that looking in the mirror phase. They're going over a lot of what I've talked about on this show. Uh, Gobert's looking in the mirror and saying, okay, how do I play defense differently from how I did in game one. Uh, The Jazz offense is looking in the mirror and they're saying, is it as simple as we just need to shoot better from three? Can it just be that simple? 
Or what are the other tweaks that we need to make, especially if Mitchell is not playing or if he's compromised while playing? And that's what we're going to see on Wednesday night. And that's what we're going to have on this show on Thursday morning because every single Jazz game that happens, we're going to come back to the table and we're going to go over stuff like this. This looking in the mirror, this evaluation of yourself, and we're going to talk about what the actual realized version of the Jazz is as the course of these playoffs go on. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.